The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. It's a great pleasure today to welcome Wolf Alisat, Chief Commercial Officer at Umbabel. Umbabel are funded by the likes of Notion Capital and Google Ventures and they utilize artificial intelligence to enable translations between companies and their customers. And Wolf has previously held international sales leadership positions at a number of uh, successful software scale-ups, including Omniture, where he was the first international employee. He grew the European business to more than 1,100 customers and 200 employees. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, Wolf. Okay. Hi, hi everyone. Thanks, Gary, for having me on your program. So, Wolf, how did you get into technology sales leadership? I, I started my career after, after I did my master's in economics um, at a consulting company called Accenture, uh, or Anderson Consulting back then, now Accenture. And even there, within six months, I was really doing much more proposal work and selling the services rather than sort of being an analyst in its, its true form. And was encouraged early on by, by the management there to, to try out my hand in sales. And, and so I, I luckily did. And you know, within, within those two years at Anderson, you know, really switched my focus much more on selling and, and managing people. And joined sort of at the same time the internet revolution back in sort of 1999, uh, moved to Seattle, and uh, started uh, in sales for a, a small Microsoft spin-off, and I looked back since then. <laughs> Good. Okay. So those were the early days. Um, at some point, you landed at uh, Omniture uh, as their first international employee, eventually growing the the, the region to a thousand plus customers. Um, how, how did it be, feel to be their first employee on the ground in Europe? You know, at, at first lonely because I was on my own. Um, um, I also made sure that I was communicating very heavily with uh, my counterparts and you know account managers, product managers um, that were based all in Utah. Um, I also went over there at least once a quarter uh, to keep in touch with latest developments and to really breathe um, the whole culture so that I could take that culture um, that was performing so well over in the US into the European market. What, what were some of the um, cultural hurdles that you, you faced and, and how did you overcome them or were other hurdles um, more substantial at that point? Yeah, depending on, on what company you work for. So in my case, very often uh, in my career, it was American companies that I would bring to the um, to international markets. Um, you face, you know, more of a, a gung-ho, rah-rah sales and marketing culture. And then, of course, you, you if you try and just um, try the same tricks in France, Germany, or the UK, you'll be met with uh, skepticism and yeah, that doesn't really work here. So it was always about adapting a culture of a company to the, to the various markets that we were um, entering. And sort of while keeping the spirit of the culture, 
making it more palatable for, for the international taste. What were the other hurdles that you faced in those, in those early days and how did you overcome them? A lot of it was actually having enough time in the day. Um, I remember fondly uh, my first employee, uh, a gentleman and close friend called David Brown, who, who was my first account manager I hired at Omniture. And, uh, and the only time of day we would actually both have time to talk to each other was often around midnight every night. And so it was really uh, time management, finding enough hours in the day um, as you're starting and you're you know, internationally you're still one or two man band. As we grew and hired more people, you know, in their in the different respective functions, you know, that became better. Uh, perhaps more stressful, but at least uh, you were able to delegate uh, some of the tasks, which in the beginning you had to do everything by yourself. Do you think that's easier in this day and age to to sort out the time management and the prioritization with all of the tools and technologies we have at our fingertips? Um, yes and no. I think um, a lot of things have become easier and, you know, having virtual to-do lists that you can share with the teams and, and sort of, you know, do help manage your time. But, but at the end of the day, um, you know, the day still only has 24 hours. So technology has helped somewhat, um, but if there's so much to do that needs to get done, you know, in person or that you have to do, um, you know, it, it hasn't it hasn't advanced so much that it's made a significant difference. <laughs> Reflecting again on on Omniture, um, we've been talking about the hurdles and challenges up until now. Let's talk about the success for a few moments. What what led to your your success, and was there a tipping point? So I think all successful companies out there. Um, require, you know, some innovative or very high quality product to start with, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, many people talk about that it was their great sales technique or their management style or something to, to you know, that, that created the success. But really, if you break it down to it was a very innovative idea and a very well executed product. Um, that because, especially in SaaS companies, Success has to be a long-term partnership with all the clients. And so if the product doesn't deliver consistently and over time and always to the delight of customers, um, then that would be very hard to build upon. And so, so we, 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 we were lucky in a way that we had a really amazing and flexible product um, and that it hit at a time where the internet was just exploding and the other solutions out there had really not um, had not um, adapted new technology as fast as we had. Um, but but you know where was the tipping point? Is it became you know at the beginning nobody knew our brand name, nobody knew who we were, and so we really had to go out there and evangelize what we were doing because it was very new at the point also, and who we were, and also to build up trust. Uh, with an international customer base um, where previously there had only been U.S. customers. And so the tipping point really came when we had enough clients um, that were very happy and happy to take reference calls, um, happy to talk to the media, 
um, where our awareness was at a, at a stage where, you know, we had very a, a high degree of inbound uh, leads come in to inquire and where we didn't have to just overcome the initial hurdles of who are you and why should we trust you? Sure. Um, it's interesting you talking about the lack of brand recognition, etc. Um, that must put some real challenges in terms of the, the kind of individual, the characteristics of, uh, of the sales and biz dev person that would really suit the team you were building then. So over the years, as you've built up these early stage businesses, quite often with minimal marketing budget and brand recognition behind you, have you managed to find the, the right people with the right skills to, to sell in that environment? Yeah, so interesting point is there can be salespeople that come from Oracle and Salesforce and, you know, the likes of, of big brands that are easily recognized um, that were very successful at their particular job in those companies who are absolutely um, are going to fail in a startup environment, you know, where there's no brand recognition. So, you know, the people I look for are, are scrappy fighters um, that can deal with 90% no, um, that can deal with, uh, you know, really evangelizing a new idea or a new concept um, and are very sort of outspoken, um, but also, um, you know, can conduct themselves in a consultative manner rather than in trying to sell a product. And, and then that's very hard to find. And so I spend a lot of my time um, in the recruiting process interviewing people um, because that's really the crucial, the crucial magic source to any success really is, you know, beyond having a good product is really having a team um, that can then bring that to the market and, and finding, finding good salespeople and that can deal with no process or very little process, no brand recognition, um, and a lot of no's at first. That's very much finding that uh, proverbial needle in the haystack. Do, do you have a particular technique or a particular question or even series of questions that helps you figure out whether the person you're interviewing really is able to thrive in, in that early stage sales environment? I mean, the, the usual, you know, I, I like to find out why people left a position and there's no right or wrong um, reason here for people to leave and, and jump between jobs. And of course, in today's world, people are leaving jobs much more frequently than, than even 10, 20 years ago. Uh, my, my favorite sales question actually is, um, what car do you drive? <laughs> And again, there's no right or wrong answer, but I, I gain a lot of information from what people tell me, how they react to the question. Um, and uh, so, for example, if somebody says, well, that's not job related, you know, uh, you know, I could sue you for this question. Uh, I know that I don't want to work with that person. Um, if somebody says, I don't own a car, um, because I live downtown and I, I use Uber, then that's a perfectly valid um, answer. And, and that, that tells me something about, you know, that person. If somebody says, 
I own a beat up SAP because I don't believe in losing value over time. That, that's cool too. But every answer you get actually describes that person's nature in a way that they wouldn't answer in an interview um, honestly um, and, and correctly. And so it really helps me uh, make judgment on, on who is this person sitting in front of me. Uh, have you had any mentors who've really helped you develop your ideas and your approach? Yeah, I had um, I had a, a couple along the way. Um, an early one was uh, the CEO of, of back then Digimind, my first startup, uh, Usama Fayyad, who was probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. He was a, a data scientist at NASA, exploring stars and and uh, I, I, I really learned a lot from him early on in my career around how to, how to analyze data, you know, being from sales forecasts to, to clients, uh, to take a very data-centric approach to life. Um, later on, um, I had um, coaches like, uh, like Chris Harrington, president of Omniture, now president of Domo, and Josh James, the founder of those two companies, um, to really help me understand what effect an amazing sales and marketing team can have uh, on, on expanding a product line and, and launching new markets. Um, I had uh, mentors like uh, Emil Weston, who used to um, run Zeeble and before that Oracle, um, who was brought in at Omniture um, before our IPO to really understand and help me understand at what point to put in management levels um, and how to delegate things that even actually have a life, um, you know, while, while joining all these crazy startups. So I've had a, a real number of, of mentors over the past 20 years who all gave me different parts and aspects of, of who I am today. And all of those mentors were within the, the businesses that you were working in. Have you, have you ever had any external mentors or coaches outside of your companies? No, never. Um, always, always people I work with. And, and the main reason um, for that is probably that it's really important for me to, um, to like the people and to want to work with the people within the company, you know, even more so important, you know, the small startup. And so I've, uh, I've never had the time for, for outside metrics, probably, but also I've been very lucky throughout to always find people within um, that could teach and mentor. So Wolf, what, uh, what advice would you like to give to a C-level exec embarking on his or her first ever overseas expansion? Well, first of all, do your homework. So do some market research around, you know, what are the most promising markets for your product or solution or service? Um, also be realistic which markets you can actually service and support. You know, that's not only language, which by the way, Unbabble can help you with, you know, from a customer support in any language, but, but also uh, legal requirements, other competitors that are there already, budgets, uh, you know, based on GDP and what people are willing to spend for your kind of solution. So really, you know, understand what are the markets that are worth going after and then limit yourself, at least for the first year or so, to probably two or three of them. Because 
as soon as you start hiring people in the different uh, markets, you know, it becomes a management uh, nightmare. And so really focus on a couple of key markets that you're going to go after, focus on them, get good traction, and then you can sort of start thinking about new markets. I think it's very hard um, to, to open up many markets simultaneously. That's great advice. Um, I, I noticed in a recent uh, Unbabble job posting that you've um, emphasized weekly surfing sessions for the team. Uh, and that led me to think about, uh, well, let me to ask, what, what do you think sales and biz dev employees are looking for in their work-life balance these days? I think the... Um the typical salesperson and their personality is, is changing quite rapidly, um, where today's sort of millennial generation is not as focused on revenue and commissions um, as they were, you know, 10 years ago, even probably five years ago. And so, you know, we at Babel offer like a real sort of family experience within the working environment of having a lot of fun together, right? Because that's that's important because we spend so much time together every day and every, every year, um, but also because it, it resonates well with the millennials around really fulfilling other things than just having a salary or, or commission structure. You know, amongst other things, we go surfing, not only, uh, so we go every week for those that really want to get better at surfing and we, we schedule a bus that picks us up and, and we go early in the morning and then come back for about 10 a.m. here. But then once a month also, we take the whole company, uh, which by the way, now that we're nearly 70 people, it's becoming a bit of a logistics nightmare. But we take the whole company down to the, to the beach surfing and then have our company all hands meeting there with lots of sangria, um, sun, sea, and, and a lot of fun. Uh, but really it's, it's, it's about creating an environment where people can have fun, um, really be able to communicate with everybody, um, and, and express themselves beyond just coming here for a salary. Well, that sounds like a, a really um, inspirational um, working environment. Who, who or what, well, let's focus on who, who inspired you to be who you are? Hmm, that's a, that's a, that's a great question that I don't have, um, don't have an immediate answer for you because I don't have any key figure personality is something that I, I've, I've tried to be like. Um, I've tried to always, you know, do the best to my abilities and have a lot of fun while doing that. And I've always subscribed to the to the um, to the reasoning that if you're enjoying work, it doesn't feel like work. Um, and I think you know, successful people don't consider you know monday to friday 9 a.m to 5 p.m and you know it's a schlep to get up and then i can't wait to leave and go to the gym but but rather sort of really enjoy what they do and then it comes natural and and people around them you know feel that it's not just a, uh, just a job so yeah there's nobody um, that really has inspired me to 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 become who i am so i don't have a good answer for you then <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll move swiftly on from that one then. What's your favorite book and why? Oh, my favorite book. Um, 
I, I, we've just read as a management team here at Unbabel, uh, play bigger. So from a, from a business book perspective, perhaps that, that um, has caught my imagination and attention um, because it really talks about how every successful company needs to define a category you know, that's something new, some new way of doing business. You know, it quotes Uber and Facebook and, and the likes, Airbnb a lot. Um, but I, I, I like the concept of, of thinking a lot bigger um, and making, um, you know, rather than just, you know, a slightly better and faster mousetrap, really something that's, that's technology-based um, and really improves the customer's lives or consumer's lives. Um, so that, that's sort of the, the last book I've just read that I found inspiring. I've, I've read the usual sort of crossing the chasm and, and all, all of those. And I find every single business book has probably three or four really good ideas and that are well worth repeating. Um, but a lot of content filling also where, you know, they have to create 200 pages. So it's a proper book. Um, and so skim reading a lot of those, I think is really helpful. <laughs> I agree with you in terms of the padding of some of these books, but I, I haven't come across a play bigger. So I have to look that up on my favorite online store and, uh, and download uh, at least a sample. That sounds like an interesting read. Okay, let's, let's look to the future for a few moments. Um, Tell us about the next three years for you and the roadmap for scaling Unbabble into, into being a, truly a global leader in the market for translation technology and solutions. So I, I, um, you know, I, I moved to Unbabble because I met with the founders and really was inspired about the vision to create sort of a world you know, where everybody can understand and be understood. And then, you know, from a sort of a company perspective, be the translation layer of the internet or all communications, really. And then, and it's it's amazing, you know, how many companies out there still don't do business with other countries just because they don't speak the language. And it's something we've solved um, and are now rolling out. So, from my from my personal background, you know, having lived in all these countries, speaking speaking a few languages, it's really fascinating to see how we can um, help companies, you know, really overcome that overnight. Um, we've had um, a large uh, company like Oculus who wanted to um, sell their VR gear in Japan, asked us, hey, how can I create customer service? And we're like, well, that's fine. You currently have an English speaking customer uh, uh, service center. We can in all languages and all written communications make you now Japanese speaking, you know, where you receive and, and, and send off those. And, and so really where the next three years is we are building a lot of integrations with a lot of technology companies that where that which customers use to communicate with their customers. So our customers, you know, we help them in a seamless way communicate in any language. And so that takes time. First of all, the integrations take time. And second of all, it's, it's something so revolutionary that, that companies haven't really got budgets or even had their heads around that they should be actually selling into China. Or Chinese companies, you know, really losing 
the impression that the world has that their, their products are, are somewhat inferior, mainly based on bad translations for, for, for manuals, you know, how to operate some of these machines. And it, it's fascinating, and I'm actually spending quite a lot of time in China these days, um, that China has solved everything. They've solved production because, by the way, iPhones are being produced in China, not in the US. So they've solved, you know, perfect production technologies. They've sold logistics. You can ship anything anywhere in 24 hours from China or a whole container, you know, on a boat. Um, and they've sold design, innovation, all of those things they sold, but not language. And that's really been an afterthought. And uh, we're seeing a lot of traction, also an investment opportunity um, coming from China, where they want to reach global markets and really speak those languages. And so, you know, it really is going to be the next three years opening up those markets, um, becoming um, known in the, in the world, um, you know, as the brands on Babel is that translation layer um, and really making it seamless across any technology, be it content management, be it customer service like Salesforce or Zenbed, um, be it uh, email with Outlook um, where we're, we're working and partnering with Microsoft, that any language you want to send an email in uh, can be sent straight from Outlook to all of your customers. And so that's really um, going to be consuming my next three years. You know, we've done a, we've done, um, a survey and, you know, did a lot of market research around how are European um, companies interacting. And one of the findings is that 80% of all commerce and trade is being done with neighboring countries. So even within the EU, you know, language seems to be the biggest barrier of, of, of commerce. Um, there's some studies, for example, that say that the UK's GDP could be 3% higher if the United Kingdom wouldn't assume everybody speaks English. And so, you know, China and the US are the big two markets for us, of course. But within Europe, you know, even where, where legislation makes it super easy to do any kind of transaction, you know, it's only 20% of commerce that's beyond the borders or common languages. And so here we have a lot of work to do closer to home to also, you know, help spread the word that actually language communication isn't an issue anymore and can be solved very easily. That's fascinating research. And I guess someone who's um, going back to the almost the start of this conversation, someone who's as international as you are, almost from the day you were born, schooled in many countries, taught many languages, is almost a, a natural in this kind of role, in this kind of company. That, that was one of the big attractions for me also with Unbabel, that it, it, it was really sort of, um, you know, focusing on all the things that are fun and that I've enjoyed uh, throughout my career and, and bring that to, to a Lisbon-based startup that, that has, you know, global ambitions from, from day one. Well, let's see if we can get this uh, conversation translated into a half a dozen languages as soon as we publish it. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe Unbabel can do that for us. Absolutely. We also do video transcriptions. I mean, basically, think of the world where language isn't the problem anymore. So, so there are, I don't know, about 50,000, probably more, um, professional, no, 500,000, a ton of professional translators out in the world. And even, even if they would 
translate everything that gets created every day, they would only be translating by 1% of the daily new generated content. And we really, we, we've just come off the phone with, with a large news corporation um, that's saying, yeah, I know we're very specific about what we translate into all the different markets that we're in um, because of the cost of translation. And what we're saying is, you know, translation in the next few years will be like water, which is readily available. You know, you don't think about having a shower, um, at least in the Western world, um, and you uh, you can use it at your disposal. You know, it's very easy as a commodity. And that's really where we want to get to, to really open up, you know, all video content to be transcribed and translated, all written communication, also all articles, everything should really be in the native language. Well, a vision for the future. Well, Wolf, it's been fascinating talking to you and a real pleasure having you on the on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Gary. Real pleasure. And uh, yeah, I look forward to meeting you in person very soon. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 